Okay, if you could just, either one of you just clap. Awesome. Okay. Do you have to clap intermittently? It's so you pick up on the sound in editing, like this high, so you know when it starts. Little trick I learned. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So I'm going to do a little introduction of you. John Cook, owner and head of herd at Doris Dairy, right? Head of herd? I read that on your website. <laughs> I wrote that, yes. It's great. Raw milk dairy farm in Purton, Wiltshire, England, where we are today. I'm really excited that you wanted to do this with us, so thank you so much for joining a new table and sharing with us your passion and mission to make the world a better place. You're a fourth generation farmer, correct? Correct. And from what I understand, technically Doris Dairy comes from a long line of like a family owned business in dairy. <clears throat> Do you want to tell us a little bit about so, the history? Yeah. So the first generation was actually my great grandmother who actually married uh, a farmer, but she was one of the first ones in this area to put milk on a train and send it to London, rather than keeping the, so she was ahead of her time, long way ahead of her time. My grandfather then wasn't quite so bright, I can't take it away from him. He, um, so he sold a 200 acre farm to come to a 30 acre farm, thinking he would just live on the, on the rest of the money for the rest of his life. Of course, inflation took that out away immediately. So my dad took over when he was about 13, built up the herd and bought some more land. And then I took over, he died 10, 11 years ago. And so I've taken over then. So I've always had a passion for raw milk because I realized that, well, I was never ill. My two sisters were never ill. I mean, one of them never had a day off school in her life. Um, she's very, very proud of that. And I just, we just don't get ill. So I knew that we had a really good product. And the transition from doing a commercial so producing milk for the pasteurization market is quite different from producing milk for the raw milk. Oh, so you're producing it to be processed or you're producing it to be drunk. Quite a different process. You've got to be really mindful of the processes that go before it gets to the tank. Whereas you can be um, less, um, less careful about some things with the pasteurization. So the, the, the goal before would have been yield. Now, mm -hmm. it's, now it's quality. Right. That's the, the, the absolute goal. So. Um, right from the, from the get-go, we've been producing milk good enough to drink. I've won, there's a, there's a trophy up there for you know, really good quality milk, which I'm very proud of because we used to win, it, win one of those every year, whether it be the quality of the milk, the cleanliness of the milk, or the cleanliness of the plant. So our transition from being like a commercial producer to a raw milk producer, we didn't actually have to do anything at all. We were already there. So our emphasis, more so with me than my father, has been on the health of the cows, and, but not just the physical health, the emotional health, because that's really important. If you've got happy cows, you've got happy milk. Happy milk is far more nutritious than cows that are stressed. 
So we've always tried, I've always tried since I took over certainly, to focus on elements that um, the commercial herd doesn't. So, but the two don't actually align. So when you're producing commercial milk, you're only getting paid commercial price. Well, when you produce milk in a sympathetic to the nature and the cow, then your costs, my costs were nearly double while I was getting paid. So I couldn't continue down that line. But the yield from when I was commercial to where I am now was complete, is completely different. So I, went, I was producing seven and a half thousand liters a year. I'm producing about two to two and a half now. So, well, yeah, because I want to ask you a little bit about, because obviously the whole point is to demystify a little bit like the industry so people know the facts. Um, and I do want to ask you about the difference with the more commercial systems versus what you're doing here on this farm. But I want to come back to the animal welfare part because I think that that's a common misconception, how people tend to think that farmers who raise animals don't care about animals, mm. which couldn't be further from this truth. I Absolutely. mean, we, you took us around, we saw your, your girls and they're so happy you take such good care of them. Mm -hmm. So what would you invite people to consider in terms of how um, systems like the ones that you do on your farm really do have the animals' well-being at heart? Okay, well, most, most UK farmers would have their animals. If the animals are ill, they don't produce. Mm. The, the fact is that there is very few farms that aren't thinking about the welfare of their animals because it makes good business sense that they're, they're healthy. So, even, I mean, even the biggest commercial herds, their cows are well-fed, they're comfortable, they're, their needs are looked after. Yeah. Maybe not their emotional needs, because that's a, that's a different element that maybe gets overlooked. But they, there are, they are striving for that. I mean, you couldn't have a commercial herd keep cows with calves. I mean, it's just, <clears throat> it doesn't work. You can't have the two together. So where, where there's, um, where you hear, like, the vegans say, well, their mothers are, the cows are ripped away from their mothers. They don't form that big a bond in that many hours. So actually, it's a lot easier when you see those cows that are then taken into 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 individual pen, they are individually they're micromanaged. They know exactly how much feed they've had. They're, they're, if there's any, if they're not drinking enough, they'll take the temperature. Those calves are well looked after. Mm -hmm. When my calves are born, they just stay with their mothers. Yeah. So I don't actually know how much they're drinking. Right. I assume they're drinking enough because they're having access for twenty four hours. I have no way of actually monitoring that. I'm, I'm relying on the, the nature of part of that yeah. to work. But those, those calves are very well looked after in the commercial herd. Don't, under no circumstances are they abused because um, it makes sense for that animal to have the best start in its, its life. I mean, if it doesn't, it gets, it gets the right amount of colostrum uh, within a few hours. And yes, they are put in individual pens. That's not because the farmers don't like them. That's so they can monitor them. Then after a week, they might go into a pen of three or four, and then those groups just get bigger as they get stronger. So um, there's, there's so many elements that are, are misconstrued in the media, and especially obviously the vegan movement. That's the, that's the, and like I said to you earlier, I understand why people go vegan, because yeah. well, I can't even watch those images well that I, yeah. yeah, it is well intended, yeah. and it comes from a good place, and I totally understand why people, have, why, why, why you would feel that 
you couldn't support an industry that does these horrible things that they see maybe in Brazil or, or, or somewhere else that actually doesn't refer to anything that is, that is happening in their, in their home countries. So I get that. I totally get it. Um, it's not based in any kind of reality at all. I mean, I don't agree with like the feedlots in, in, in America. Yeah, no, that's fine. But they're supplying a market. The market dictates, you know, people want cheap food. When people realise that cheap food is cheap for a reason, something always pays. Yeah. There's, there's no such thing as cheap. There's a trade-off Always. Everywhere. So it's yeah. going to be the environment, it's going to be the animals, um, it's going to be your health because you're not getting the good nutrition. So you know, my emphasis on is producing really good fat and protein on a low, low stress system because it's the best type. So you, don't, you need a lot less. When you have grass-fed meat and it's properly grass-fed all the way through its life, you don't need anywhere near as much bulk to get the same nutrition. Mm. I mean, your body even knows it. So when you eat mass-produced, starch-filled meat, you need a lot more to get to be satiated. When you say that, it's like based on their diets, what, yeah, the, what the animal eats. Yeah. So at Doris Dairy, we have raw milk. Mm -hmm. You also sell eggs. Yep. Right. Anything else? Pigs. So we got, we do Pigs, pork yeah. as well. Okay. So yeah, beef, milk eggs pork and what's the best way because i know that you have a kiosk not too far from the farm what's you know where can customers find your products so we sell online we okay. can post we can post milk all over the country cool. and uh we can do it from the farm directly from the farm we actually come here actually buy it uh and then we've got a small little kiosk where we sell burgers and other stuff where you can pick up meat and uh whatever you want from there. Because we obviously, we haven't got brilliant access to the farm, so some people don't right. like reversing. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> cool. we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to buy from but us. But most people will drive all the way to the farm to pick things up. Yeah. I find, I personally find that such a cool experience mm -hmm. to buy your food where it's actually made. I think it offers an opportunity to have a much more considered understanding of what, ever, what goes behind everything and how the animals are well taken care of and I think for people who are used to buying food that's already nicely processed and packaged in a sterile environment like the grocery store you're not really connecting the dots mm -hmm. so I think it's really a wonderful experience that everybody should try um, I think it's actually it's vital yeah it's vital that you know the people that have grown your food because your health relies on it of course yeah and, and you we, we trust them and yeah support we them. contracted that out over the years, we've made it possible that you don't have to have any involvement where your food comes from, whether that be vegetables or, 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 or animals. Mm -hmm. And the more, you, the more you distance yourself from that, the less the value comes and the less control you have over it too. So I listen to my customers. What do you want? You yeah. and, and, then, and then they ask me questions, like you did when you first came here wherever, yeah. a couple of years ago, whenever it was. You, know, you wanted to know, how is this animal, how is this food yeah. produced? I'm happy to tell you because actually, actually, that's our contract. Your contract is with, mm. sorry about the dogs. Your contract is with the producer, not a supermarket. You need to know, actually, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to, that value of that food has actually increased for you because you get the, the, the real value from the people that are growing it. Well, there's no middleman. Yeah. Beside the financial element of it, mm. the actual wealth and health of your health 
and of the animals is actually really important. So actually when people take the time to actually go and find out the source of their, their food, where it's, where it's actually grown, the value, perceived value has increased. So when you, when you drink a pint of raw milk, you know, I mean, if you come here during milking time, you can actually see the cows that produce your milk. Well, how, how many people can actually say that they've seen the animals that they're actually... I know, just a couple of meters from where we're talking yeah. right now. Yeah, I mean, I've even got some customers that go into a, into a field and go, well, I, want, I want that cow, so, and they'll have half a cow. They've seen it walking yeah. around, they've interacted with it, they can see it's well looked after, they can, they've got its history before they've even put, you know, put it on their plate. Yeah. Which is so important. Because that's how it was. That's what it should be. Yeah. You know, we we were hunter hunter gatherers. We would have known where our we would have shot our deer, we caught our rabbits. You know, we would have known the value of that food, and that hadn't been messed around with or, or filled with any anything. I mean, people say to me, "Oh, they got hormones in it." Well, all meat's got or vegetables got hormones in them, but actually, no, there's nothing added. Mm. It's legal to add hormones in in the UK, but we still get asked the question because right. of the because of the. The, the, the media that follows this strange narrative, and it's just because we've lost contact with the customers. And we spoke about when we had a, a, a weather event here and people couldn't get a hold of milk, so they made it, a, a, it was an adventure to come to the farm. Oh, it, and it, it did us good, it put us on the map, it increased our business. But actually that's really worrying that they needed an emergency a, mm -hmm. a moment of not being able to get something to then investigate sure. where they get it from. Yeah. Well, what happens when we have a, a weather event that lasts more than two days, that lasts two weeks, three weeks, a month? Where are they going to get their food from? Because I can't supply everybody that's going in my locality. Right. You know, and there's not necessarily enough of you. There's not enough of us, yeah. absolutely. Food security is very, a real big issue. So for those who are watching or listening to this and who haven't had a chance to tour the farm, you gave us a tour mm -hmm. earlier. Do you want to describe what goes on on a farm like this one? What's a, what's a day in the life of John? Oh, God. Appreciating every single day is different on the farm. but Yeah, yeah, yeah each season's different, of course. Um, well, obviously we need to care for the animals every day. Um, Chickens, pigs, cows, all, they all need feeding, whether that be in the fields or with food that's brought to them. Yeah, because um, the cows are mainly out in pasture. That's where we, we went to go yeah, see them. Yeah, and I try to keep them out as long as I can through the year. So I think the minimum I've kept them in is about two months. Um, it's usually three. So mid-December, early, de early December, and then they go out again in late February or early March. That's the ideal, because that means I have right. to do less poo picking. Because then they go, so they graze out and they um, they eat fresh grass all day. Yep. Ideally. Ideally. Right? That's the ideal. Yes. And then you move them around <clears throat> to make sure that they keep having fresh grass. Yes. The grass growth is very important. We want it to recover mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. So we, um, although we don't do practice mob grazing in its pure form, we are trying to let the ground have access to cows for a short amount of time and then long rest periods so it can grow, grow back and get better but we don't eat the grass we don't make the grass go um, right down to the ground yeah. <coughs> we allow it to stay long so it can grow back, so it can grow back yeah. faster and then so you check on them every day and mm -hmm. we saw some of them move and they knew exactly where to go yeah right of course they do yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. and so do they so obviously they want to go um, give milk to their calves do um, and do the cows get milked 
every day? Every day, yeah. Consumers? We only milk once a day. Okay. So we've been doing a, you call it milk sharing. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> as you saw earlier, some of the some of the cows, the old, the, we tend to overnight wean. So the calves will stay with their mothers upward I have a few that have been up to a year but um, usually three to four months yeah, some of them are yeah, yeah huge and sometimes that's done for for ease um, I can't stand the the, the, the distress calls and, and we've had a few cows that will will refuse to wean their calves mm. um, and jump through barbed wire or over fences or through through barns, actually, I want to destroy a barn to get to his calf because I tried to separate us. I kept her in a confined space, and you will not go there, and she still found a way there. So How did you manage that? I just left them together. Leave them. Yeah. yeah. Then, so the calf takes all the milk, so I have no milk at all. So commercially, that's suicide. But you care about the emo- emotion. I couldn't. Yeah, separating animals is a really, really hard thing to do, especially when you're living in the environment because you hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you're that in tune with your animals, you feel it too. And I don't like feeling it. So, and then you um, obviously the the shop, if we can call it that, the farm is open to for people to come and pick up their products. Every We're open day seven day. to seven every day. Okay. So a good part of my day is talking to people. Yeah. Which isn't a problem. I enjoy inviting people into the farm to to see because it's important. You yeah. Know? And it, the first time you came here, I, mean, I don't know how long you were here. Yeah. Half an hour, forty five yeah. minutes. At least. Yeah. And. You know, I'm happy to give that well, time. The same, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's why I think also I always knew that you would be great for this because, um, you know, I don't think uh, whatever the field like sales or marketing, just having that, being able to spread the gospel or share the story, it's mm-hmm. not something that's natural or comfortable for everyone. So, um, yeah. For having passion for what you do yeah. makes it easy. Yeah. You know, I'm, there's nothing to hide here. It's open door. Come and see what we do. And that's really important. It's and like as we were saying earlier, for for your appreciation of how important that food is and, and the, the perceived value of that food to you, it, it, it increases that value if you have contact with the people and the actual product mm-hmm. at source. So you mentioned this before, but I'll just reiterate. We um, So we met, I think it was last summer, um, which is when I was first getting introduced to the regenerative movement. For those who don't know what regenerative agriculture is, people are, I think, more familiar with the term sustainability. Um, how would you explain regenerative agriculture? Uh, and how does, how does Doris Dairy try to be as regenerative as possible? Was it, did you always start out like that or did you transition? Explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> okay, so um, I think I came about it uh, slightly by accident, I suppose. Um, the regenerative approach. Yeah, um, I had a field that just wasn't wasn't producing, and I was putting fertilizer on it, and it wouldn't produce. When you say producing, you mean like the grass? grass isn't yeah, well. grass is yeah. the only crop I, I grow. And it was just like it was just sterile, it was dead. Yeah. And Which couldn't feed your cows. Yes. Right? It was effectively a field that was just costing me money. Mm. It wasn't producing. And it was a. We bought the field 25 years ago, something like that. And I, I remember I was 15, 16, and we. That's longer than that, wasn't it? Damn. And um, 
the first year we had it, it grew that much grass, we thought we'd got the golden goose. And the, the grass growth was, it, the first crop we had off that field, I wouldn't have got anywhere near that um, a few years ago. So the first crop, I, I, well, the first crop we had about 110 bales off seven acres. So this is a small field. I mean, it's not. Right. It's, it's, so for those who are listening that are not necessarily farmers, it's a lot. Yes. Yeah. So a normal field, you'd get 70 bales, about 10, 10 bales to the acre. Okay. So it's just like, wow, this field is incredible. Right. And then, so we had four cuts off it that year, mm -hmm. and it went from 110 to, I don't know, it was 70, 40, and then maybe 20. So I wasn't even getting 70 bales off this field. And then it was getting down and down and down. So I, you know, it was about 30, 40 bales. It was just, so I looked into it and it didn't matter how much inorganic fertilizer I put on. Inorganic. Inorganic. So like, you know, yeah, prills. Prices, so, yeah. yeah, so manufacture thing. It just wouldn't grow. And it's because I'd stripped it. I mm. literally stripped the guts out of this field over the course of a few years. And then I realized oh, we need to put some organic matter back in. And that was the key to realizing that we need to find a way of restoring it, at least, you know, at least putting back in. Yeah. So we would class that ground as hungry ground. So I mean, you put manure on it, cow manure, and it just eats it and it just disappears. Okay. I put 160 tons of compost on that field and it didn't even look like you'd even been out there. It, okay. was, it, was, it was just so hungry. So we are putting different grasses now onto that field. So I'm not expecting to get lots of growth. I'm expecting the the, so I'm using a lot more clovers to actually put like natural nitrogen back into the into the soil, and and then that when you start going down the wormhole of well, the whole the whole food thing just leads you into regener regenerative the, the the wormhole, and so so what we're trying to do here now, as as well as farming sympathetically with the animals, we're trying to farm sympathetically with the, with the earth as well. So we haven't used fertilizers, for, I don't know. 10 years, artificial fertilizers. We've, um, we do some balancing so the minerals are out, uh, phosphorus or something like that. We'll, 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 we'll put that right, because obviously that's, that's important, but we're just trying now to build soil. Right. And that's, if, you wanna, if you're that's a five-year-old, five-year-old, building soil is what I would yeah. say the regenerative is trying to do. So instead of depleting, we're trying to maintain and build which is really difficult to do. Mm. But mob grazing is one of, those, one of those ways that you can, you can actually add organic matter to the soil. It, it, it's, it's a very slow process. But so that, that's essentially what regenerative agriculture tries to do is understanding that cycle mm. that if your earth isn't healthy and all the biodiversity that's in that, then your grass is not gonna grow or you know whatever else should be growing out of it. So you don't have food for the animals. The animals can't be healthy. Um, so obviously, making sure that you're working with this cycle, this natural cycle, and not against it mm -hmm. is, is the whole principle. Yeah. And yeah. so you know, what would? So I guess it was a bit of a, a transition in a way. Mm, it was, like, yeah. Yeah. By it was. Accident. Well, we've been taught, you know, get as much milk out of the cows, treat them with antibiotics so they right. get ill fertilizer spray kill everything you don't want we're actually we're killing all the stuff that we actually need to make it healthy and as an industry we're, we're led by governments and, and 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 science that you know you need all this really nice rich rye grass because you get all the bulk and all the sugars in it 
but actually the soil is not doing the soil any good at all. Mm. And then you've got to spray it off and glyphosate and all. The whole, the whole, the whole thing is not in sympathy. I mean, I had, you know, I've replanted lays. I don't, I don't spray them off. I just turn them over and, well, I should turn the top over just so I get a seed bed. So I'm not ripping them up completely because that's the best way to lose carbon is for the atmosphere, which is to start ploughing and right. turning over ground. Which is a, another key component of regenerative practices is to basically regenerate, put the health back into whatever ecosystem you're mm -hmm. managing um, so that it would become a, a carbon sink, yes. carbon sequester mm -hmm. carbon, which mm -hmm. is the big problem today. Yep. Um, so farmers like you are really are really trying to do that. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm brilliant at it. We're learning all the time and sometimes the processes or the practices you need to do are, are hard to get your head around when you've been doing something for so long before. Right. Uh, and like leaving grass in a field is like... Oh but there's still grass in there, the cows could eat it. But knowing that it, it actually regenerates much quicker if you, if you leave a, a, a good base, yeah. it's a hard one to get your head around because you're so used to like strip, strip feeding right down to the soil, not down to the soil, but by, by an inch, and then moving them on again. Um, that's, a hard one, that's a hard one to get your head around. I think that's something that Gabe Brown in, mm -hmm. uh, from Dirt to Soil uh, explains really well when he's starting to sort of question the farming practices that he was accustomed to that mm -hmm. they teach in school um and it's that well why are we why are we doing it this way it's yeah. just i don't know just because i think the best thing it's always been done like that the best thing he says is don't be tempted by the plow but sell it hmm. if you sell the plow you can't use it and you find another way of doing it but no i mean his his his, his approach is incredible so there's never bare soil the amount he can produce on a, on, a, on an acre hmm would make most arable farmers envious yeah. because he's got a, he's got, always got a crop growing underneath or the crop that's growing underneath is designed to feed the next next crop or feed the soil every single decision he makes is about the soil health and you see it like i mean we all feel it when we were walking through i don't think i i think that we can trust our instincts even if we're not necessarily in the industry we were you took us around your fields it's lush you're seeing flowers grow everywhere you you can tell that it's a healthy field mm -hmm. even if you don't really know why mm -hmm. um sure hearing the birds chirp the bees all that that's great um <laughs> so for let's say just from your personal experience and obviously it's tried and tested and some things work and you do have to make things that work for you to a certain extent what are some of the tips that you would suggest or advice that you would give to farmers that might be interested in trying a few regenerative techniques um, and that are like new to this what would you read read lots of books there's lots of stuff on youtube read dirt to soil that's it they just read that book alone isn't isn't there follow some of the i mean there are lots of grazers on on youtube that just show you what they do um greg judy for one um, there's, there, there is lots of information out there now how, how to do it successfully. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I follow all of them <laughs> or, or, or many of them, but it's um, the information's there to yeah. do. And don't be scared of it. It's not like a woohoo. Mm -hmm. You don't need to wear a hippie scarf to, to do it. You know, yeah, it can, it can, you can integrate it one way or another. Yeah. Um, so there's something that stood out to me when I was reading up about the farm mm -hmm. and I actually I thought that was quite cute so I have the quote here I want to read it back to you <laughs> uh, so John William Cook is that your grandfather? Dad. 
dad took over the running of the farm after he left school and installed an abreast milking parlor mm-hmm. much to the disgust of his father who said milking machines will never catch on mm-hmm. i guess your father went forward with that and he increased the size of the herd and invested in modern equipment to improve the efficiency of the farm we still use the same parlor today yep which equates to over 39,000 milkings mm-hmm. and 1.5 million cows milked in the parlor. Mm-hmm. So it's funny to think that technology relative to the time has always meant it's met with a little bit of apprehension. Mm-hmm. Um and like on a lot of levels I get I get it, although adoption of technology in some ways inevitable. So how do you manage um to reconcile and find the balance between keeping with modern standards to have a profitable business but also um staying true to your values and staying aligned with regenerative practices that still work with nature. Um in many ways that's been quite easy just to stay off the tractor. Stay off the tractor. Stay off the tractor. Oh, that's not a metaphor. It's literally stay off. The stay off the tractor because I'm not burning any fuel. I'm not destroying anything. I'm not turning anything over. It's actually been quite easy. Okay. I don't like driving tractors, so it actually it works. It works really well. Um, regarding like the milking process, um, as you mentioned, I use the same milking parlor that my dad did. There's different equipment inside that milking parlor, uh, and I did go far higher tech. And far higher tech doesn't always work with animals, so I've come back to very low tech now. Um, so. I haven't changed that process. I like the process. I have daily contacted with the individual cows on my on my level. System suits me. Also I use I use more um efficient equipment for cooling. Yeah. So the milk and we we have to test the milk continuously to make sure that it's up to standards and nothing's going wrong. And safe to drink. Safe, yeah, safe to drink. Um well, what they consider a safe to drink and what actually is safe to drink is debatable. Right. Um because what I grew up on they wouldn't even pick up on the tanker these days um so that it is is poles poles apart so uh, uh well you find that sweet spot with technology and yeah. still making sure that you're close enough to the animals and the customer that everybody is happy and yes the technology gives, gives me more time to spend with the animals probably that's a good way good way of putting it and the knowledge about regenerative means i don't need to be spending time on a, on a on a tractor destroying things i can actually spend more time mm-hmm. enjoying it maybe is a good way of putting it appreciating it mm-hmm. rather than looking at weeds as a issue just see them as a, a benefit they're there for a reason all the weeds are there for a reason mm-hmm. and rather than just trying to bash them all the time and destroy everything around it just know that they're there for if you, as soon as you know that they're there for a reason then there's you start to look at things differently totally yeah yeah um so you have a bit of a business background running a business is hard i think we can all say farming mm-hmm. is even harder yeah <laughs> regenerative farming depends how you slice it uh are there any specific governmental policies or incentives that have positively influenced sustainable or regenerative dairy production in the UK um like do you feel like there is enough or more governmental support now for a farmer like yourself or 
um, would you say that there's still work that needs to be done? No, they're doing a good job, actually. Um, <clears throat> the support system is, is changing. We shouldn't have a support system. We should be able to just survive without it. But we've got what we've got. And so the stewardship schemes that we've, we're now actually is promoting herbal lays. Herbal lace. Herb, herbal lace. So actually planting herbs into oh, yes. so chicory, plantain, sanfoin, all the stuff that actually helps with uh, mineral extraction, if you like, and availability to the cows. Yes, so that's, that's supported quite a lot. Hedge cutting. <clears throat> we used to cut our hedges every year in a nice little box. Um, I've not cut them now for two years, most of them. So we'll be in a three-year cycle where we cut them once every three years. And that's just to maintain a shape. So our biodiversity regarding birds and insects is, is increased. So even within, even within two years is incredible, the difference. Uh, yes, I think they are actually being quite supportive at the moment. That's great. I don't like the fact that they have to be. I would much rather that they didn't have to be, that that was a, something I could do off my own back, earn enough money out mm. of it, out of, the, out of what I produce, to be able to just let that sort of stuff happen naturally. Mm. But no, they, they think they are encouraging it. So that's great. Yeah, in a good way. Um, I know we talked a lot about the, um, the, the farming itself, but if we can deep dive into the product. Uh, so raw milk and the health benefits. So raw milk, for those who don't know, that means unpasteurized milk. And so what's the difference between raw milk and pasteurized milk, which is what most people are able to, what people buy at the grocery store? Easier to probably say the similarities. The similarities, okay. They're white. <laughs> raw milk is milk. That's, let's get that fact straight away. So milk that comes straight from the animal, a healthy animal, everything in that milk is is in exactly the right proportions, proteins, carbohydrates, fats, vitamins, minerals, to sustain and grow a baby mammal. It's designed to grow a baby mammal. Right. And that transfers directly to how, when we consume it. If you fed just pasteurized milk, you wouldn't get any of those benefits. So the pasteurization kills good and bad bacteria. And so what, what's pasteurization though? Heating up to um, 63 degrees or more for a set period of time. So 63 degrees for half an hour, I think it's 72 for five minutes, or this, the ultra high is 90 odd for three or four seconds. Which is the process that all milk has to go through in order to be commercially sold, right? Correct. So in that process, you are denaturing the proteins, you're destroying the enzymes, um, you're making the vitamins less available. It's effectively a soup of dead bacteria right. and cells. It's, it's killing the milk. It's killing the milk. You've destroyed all of the benefits of that milk. So when you, when your body, when you drink pasteurized milk, your body doesn't recognize that as a food. So your pancreas has to enzymes to be able to actually start breaking that down your body goes into a bit of a crisis this, these are where people get asthma and eczema from from drinking milk that, right, that, that's, that's a, yeah, yeah. It's a histamine response you actually are having they say by people getting blocked noses when they drink dairy um, 
if you, if you drink raw milk, you probably won't get those symptoms because your body, when you drink raw milk, your body just goes, ah. And the enzymes are... Every enzyme well. you need to break it down is in, is in the milk. Oh, wow. So it's a pure, a pure form of food. And I have customers that will live on it for a month at a time. No, don't chew anything. They literally just, just, they do a milk just have detox. Raw, it's a raw milk detox, basically. It's called Go Mad Diet, a gallon of milk a day. And um, bodybuilders will do it to put, on, to put on mass. Raw milk. Raw milk. Obviously. Yes, okay. yeah. It wouldn't work with pasteurized milk. It doesn't work at all. So the benefits to your microbiome, um, again, we don't necessarily have the science to back this up, but anecdotally, I've got people that come to me, it's their medicine. If they don't have it, they're ill. So IBS is a, is a classic one. The amount of people that have come to me with serious IBS, within a month of having it, their symptoms have cleared up and they'll talk to me about their waxy poos, which is something which is a, you know, a real achievement for them. Um, one of my neighbors, um, she had a very small amount of food groups she could eat until she had our raw milk. She can't eat, she still can't eat all of them, I think, I think um, tomatoes and there's something else I think, don't think, I think she struggles with, but um, we have people come with eczema that's, you know, their faces are cracking up uh, and within the month that's like a pink healed, it's, it's incredible. Well, because when I was, so when I was a teen, I had really bad acne and I, I mean, you know this, I used to be vegan, vegetarian, but I initially uh, just stopped drinking milk to help mm -hmm. reduce the inflammation mm -hmm. from this bad acne. Um, switching over to raw milk I've not necessarily experienced any flare-ups like I would have thought I would if I would have done mm -hmm. a whole pint of pasteurized milk mm -hmm. so yeah I know I hear a lot of stories of people um, switching over to raw milk or reintegrating milk through unpasteurized products and yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, so when they say give up dairy because it's you're probably intolerant to it, you probably are. Pasteurized milk. Right. Raw milk are very unlikely. But a lot of people think they're lactose intolerant, but actually they're protein intolerant. So that with our selective breeding policies over a couple of centuries, I suppose, we've bred out um, part of, 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 so different cows produce different sorts of beta casein. So there's A1 and A2. Now everybody can pretty much digest A2, but not everybody can digest the A1. The A1 cows are the ones that gave them more milk. Okay. The bigger bodies. So the genetics all were steering towards these A1 cows, which is making people intolerant to milk. Right. So it's like a complete opposite to what they actually wanted to achieve. So we've been selectively breeding for A2 for five years now, and we are, I think we've got about three or four cows that aren't A2 left. So our milk is classed as A2. So we don't get as many barriers to people being able to drink our milk as we used to before. So even though it's raw, still people would go, oh, I still get bilious, I'm still feeling sick, um, or it has a, a, you know, a, a laxative effect. And now we don't get any of that. We don't get those symptoms. We don't get the eczemas or, or, or anything we used to get before. I mean, where our relief milker, she used to get eczema on her hands and she actually put it onto her hands, literally as a topical treatment. And that's now cleared up. That's actually kind of so funny because I'm, I'm just thinking of this. Um, I saw on this uh, on TV at some point, I think some women do that for eczema. Um, mm -hmm. They use breast milk, their own breast yeah, yeah. milk, 
which technically is SA2. Yeah. SA2. Oh. Same, same as goats. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so a bit of, I know it sounds like a silly question, but for people who, who don't know, unpasteurized milk is not the same thing as unhomogenized milk yes. that you see in the grocery store, right? Unhomogenized and uh, pasteurized is about the most toxic thing you can do to milk. Okay, yeah. well, so explain so what's that. So homogenization is where they smash the fat globule. Apparently the housewife doesn't like it when the milk separates. So when the fat goes to the top, yeah. what they do, they, they put it through this, uh, like a pinhole, they force it through a pinhole, really high pressure, and it just smashes up that fat globule to make it much smaller. Mm -hmm. um, when you consume that milk, all of those sugars and all those fats go straight through your stomach wall, mm -hmm. straight into the, into the lining of your stomach. Um, whereas with pa uh, un unhomogenized milk, the fats go into your lower intestines where it's actually digested in that, and then that will then feed your brain and your joints and all the, all the places it's supposed to be. Um, good example f uh, for the, the speed of absorption is um, ADHD kids. So we've got mothers that will come and get our milk to feed them lasting at night, because if they have pasteurized, homogenized milk, the kids are on the ceiling. Oh, the wow. brains are just so active, because the sugars are just, they're giving them a sugar spike, like giving a kid a Haribo. Whereas our milk, because it's ingested in a different way and it's slow release sugar, they sleep. So it's actually a sleeping, sleeping aid. Interesting. And good for you know, things like diabetes as well, because you don't get that sugar loading. Your body, is, is, it, the sugars are delivered in such a way that your body can cope with, because it's a natural product, it's not been messed with. So the homogenization, I believe, no fact, is that was designed by the dairy companies because it makes the equipment much easier to clean. If you've got fat that sticks to the outside of a silo, when it goes down, it just sticks to the outside. And that takes a lot of energy, a lot of steam, a lot of water to clean that off. Whereas if it's just in solution, it's just a rinse. And very clean, mm. very easy to clean. Very much easier to have on, on the equipment so you don't have to have um, lots of expensive cleaning equipment to go with it or, or, or even heating up lots of water. That's my theory. I don't know. I don't know that for a fact. You're the expert. So I'm not I'll the expert. For it. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, mean, I uh, like you get industry insiders. I won't drink pasteurized. I won't even drink my own pasteurized milk. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that that tells us everything we need to know. Um, kind of. Uh, so, you know, unpasteurized milk, so raw milk, is illegal to sell point blank where I'm from in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, in the UK, I understand that you can sell raw milk in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, not Scotland, mm -hmm. right? Correct. Provided that the raw milk is sold directly on the premise of the farm that's registered for that and the, a farmer's a, markets? Or? There's a few strange rules. But yes. Okay. So I can go to a farmer's market and sell it, and I can also post it. Right. Or but people can come here and, and buy from you directly. Directly. Yeah, right. indeed. But I couldn't give to you to go and sell to somebody else. I couldn't even give to you to go and deliver to somebody okay. else. So like I couldn't, I couldn't buy that for my cafe and then sell it off no. to another. And the same way that you couldn't necessarily, you, you wouldn't, it's not legal to sell it to a, a Tesco or something like that. No. I think in the US, it's similar to the UK. I'm, I'm sure there's like different rules depending on the different states. Different states, different rules. Yeah. yeah. Where you can buy the raw milk directly mm -hmm. on site. Um, how come, like, why is it like that? Or is this a bit too much of a politically charged question? Why is it like that? Um, it comes from bad science. So what went wrong with raw milk is 
the industrial period, so the 18, 1800s, when they started having industrial revolutions, they started having people congregate in towns. They needed food, so they couldn't bring the milk from the country into the town before it went off, right. before it went sour. So what they did, they took the cows into the town. There's no grass in town. So they were feeding them bakery waste and stuff from breweries and, and, and just catering waste, basically. Well, that made the cows ill. So within raw milk, there's natural pathogen inhibitors if the cows are healthy. If the cows are on a species-appropriate diet, that will be a healthy product. As soon as they started feeding them an inappropriate diet, the milk started to become bad. Mm. It didn't have, any, didn't have the properties that it did from the country. So instead of working that out, they just decided to, Louis Pasteur decided that you know he had the answer, which at the time made perfect sense because then they were ensuring the health of the people that were consuming the milk because the, it, was making, it was bad milk and it was making the people ill. Well, we understand much more about milk. We understand how to cool it now. We're much more efficient at cooling. We're much more efficient at understanding, the farmers understand like the pathogen and how, the, how they can, can infect the milk. So we're far more careful. So they're, they're basing the rules on science from 100, 120 years ago, where actually the science now is completely different. The food is actually, if you want to, if you want to look at it, statistically, it's safer than pasteurized milk. Right. But we're not allowed to say that. Right. We're not even allowed to say there's any health benefits of it because we have no scientific peer-reviewed data because we're all individual little farmers just doing it. We've got loads of anecdotal evidence, right. but that doesn't equate to being able to make a claim. So the reason it won't change is because they are so scared that they will make a, make a, make a, a decision. That, that would be a mistake. And, the, the irony is, because there's so few raw milk producers, if there is ever an outbreak of something, the media focuses on it. Right. Whereas you don't hear about the, the Chinese restaurant that might have poisoned 30 people five miles away from you because um, it's happening in every town. Well, I think just keeping it close to dairy, because wasn't there like a recall on a particular yogurt or something at some point and it made the news? But I think, you know, when it's almost like you buy things commercially you don't even remember there are farmers behind that and there's a whole system you just think the yogurt or the milk that comes in the carton and you're not really associating it to the realities of the farmers behind yeah that. and the realities of life are there will be instances that go wrong yeah you can get e coli from lettuce right can compile a bacteria from lettuce is one of the is one of the biggest sources of food contamination mm. but because it happens so much it's not focused on right you know Salad is, is, is probably the worst food unless you actually have your own knowledge mm -hmm. about how it's actually produced. You know, some of these supermarkets give you free, not supermarkets, restaurants give you free salad when you go in, don't they? Take a salad bowl. Well, mm -hmm. when was that produced? You don't know. Mm -hmm. You have no, no idea. But and if it does make somebody ill, then it's not necessarily reported in the same way it does if raw milk is the, you know, the big bad ogre that's yeah. about to come out and Bite you. It feels like uh, feels like you guys are a bit like the scapegoats. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very easy to point a finger at somebody that's made something. And yeah, there are you know some there are there have been instances, not many, where I mean I think there was one instance where somebody died, but then their immune system may have been compromised right. before you. you before you even started that. And like you said, and it's true, that could happen anywhere in any industry with any kind of food. And mm -hmm. Was that 
So to make the decision to produce raw milk and raw milk products, was that ever a debate then for you? Because it, there are hoops to jump through. and Not for me. No, because you believe in the, mm-hmm. in the message. Mm-hmm. And there's, I know you were telling me this a little bit earlier, because I asked you how, how many raw dairy producers you reckon there are? I think it's just, just over 100 now. Were there more of you before or less? Mm, a lot, yeah. I think it was 186 when we started. Okay. When you say we started, that's how long? When we been? started actually selling raw milk. Okay. Okay. And there's a, there's the... a pub- published list. Okay. Ah, I see. What do you think caused the decline? Uh, so they've, um, they've changed the rules. So you have to have a food safety management system now. And as farmers, we're not very good paperworkers. We like to do the thing unless well, you've don't, got. Don't play into the stereotype now. <laughs> we want to farm. It's true. That's yeah, what we want to do. <laughs> you know, our passion is cows, not paper. Yeah. And although we've got to go through all those processes, you probably need somebody on the farm that's capable yeah. of. And there'd be a lot of people that just say that's too much for us to. Too many hoops. Too many. It's too much stress for us to go through. So it's turned a lot of people off, and they just stopped. Yeah. Which is which is sad. But you were telling me that you were starting to see that number come back up a little bit? Um, so we're seeing more micro dairies. Okay. Oh, what's that? So people with one or two cows. So for their own personal... They start for their own personal their use. And, and then, yes, the, the offshoot is they always have too much milk. When, you, when, you, when a cow calves, you know, you have too much milk. So you can't drink it all yourself. So then you start to try and sell. And, you know, there's lots of people like, like me that have the same passion. Um, you know, if you've, if you've got a child that's ill, you will need to go and search out raw milk for skin complaints or digestive issues, eczema, asthma. And when you've done that and you find the value of it, I can see why people are then hooked into actually maybe wanting to do that themselves. Some people travel miles. I've got one guy who travels two and a half miles, two and a half hours to come here. Wow. That is probably not super eco-friendly, but... We'll it's that. not. And actually, you know, my... Like I was talking to you, like I said earlier, my Narnia is to have farms like us around every village, around every single town. There should be enough of us that you don't have to travel more than 15 minutes. Don't want to start 15 minutes cities or anything. But, you know, the food, your your food sources, majority of food sources should be close Mm -hmm. because that's a logical way. It's bonkers that it's bonkers, especially milk. I mean, if you think milk is like 90% water, tanker is just transporting water up and down the motorways to processing plants and then taking it back to the shops and then they people have to drive then to pick it up and the food miles are just absolutely bonkers i mean years ago this farm would have produced i don't know maybe 30 gallons and it would have been taken on a cart up the high street and people would have come out and they would have taken a jug out every day well it's not like that anymore it's not, but it, it could be. It could be. Um, last thing on milk, but this time, alternative milks. So obviously, we've seen a mounting popularity of everything that's not milk. So, mm-hmm. you know, milk with a Y. <laughs> Oat milk, almond milk, soy milk um, in the past decade, obviously, I think in parallel with the vegan and vegetarian movements, which for most people, I think, and like we, we said many times, is very comes from a good place you know it's mm-hmm. well in, well intended mm-hmm. um although there's definitely a dark side to that industry that's not talked oh, yeah. it's, about it's, enough it's, it's funded by the fake food industry yeah 
Um, but with the efforts that we're starting to see more and more to um, fight misinformation, are you seeing a shift in consumer attitudes towards raw dairy products or even just dairy products in general? Um, I don't think I can answer that because I only see the people that want the raw milk. Mm, fair enough. I mean, from where I sit, I feel like this regenerative movement and then all the producers and the suppliers that are part of that um, felt like it was in a very niche space, but slowly I'm kind of picking up on things in more mainstream, mainstream settings. Um, restaurants that are advertising, probably advertising that they're partnering with regenerative farmers. But I guess people who are your customers, they, they already know the spiel. So we do get new customers all the time. Um, and we have people come to do farm tours. And obviously when I manage to get my claws into them, they're going to go, wow, didn't realize all that. So there's, a, there's an ignorance about food because it's convenient. So people don't even, wouldn't even consider raw milk or the benefits of it or, or grass-fed beef because- They're just not taught. It's just not in the curriculum. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just fuel to get you through to the next, next meal. It's not, people aren't being taught nutrition. They aren't being taught the value of feeding your body to keep you out of hospital. And they're not being taught that because there's a big vested interest in people ending up in hospital. Fake food, bad nutrition, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a vicious circle that, that is, is ever increasing. So why would they want to, why would they want to tell you that actually you can avoid hospital if you actually have good food and you lose some weight and and you, you actually give your body all the, all the all the nutrients it needs rather than relying on fake food and carbohydrates that we don't need. Um, oh, I completely forgot the question. Now. No, but I mean, I think well, just the shift in consumer attitudes. But I think it's yes, something also we that we yeah. yes we had a, we chatted a little bit about as well as the. The opportunity, if you, we want to call it that, that uh, COVID lockdown kind of provided some people to just really deep dive and learn about a lot of things. And I think mainly around what is the what is true wellness, what is true well-being, what is true balance. Um, and obviously that, that pours into nutrition and what we feed ourselves, how we feed ourselves. It gave people the opportunity to have time to look at that stuff. Mm. And um, even just the people that were walking past the farm that found us and yeah. went, wow, didn't realize you were here. So I can see the benefits of raw milk and regenerative systems at many levels. So we talk about the benefits of nutrition, animal welfare, uh, human well-being and happiness, the health of our environments and ecosystems and you're clearly an advocate and a militant for all of that what do you hope for the future i hope that farms like us spring up as i said around every single town and that people appreciate that what we're trying to do actually is going to help them as well I want it to be not just us banging the drum. You need to be doing this. This is good for your health. This is good for the environment. For actually people to see it and actually feel it. 
Um, yeah, because it's not about stuffing things down people's throat and doesn't work. forcing an agenda. It's just offering the information, keeping the, uh, how do you say, open arms. Yeah, I mean, we, we did a survey on our customers to find out why they came to us. And I thought it would be our farming practices. I thought it was going to be, you know, the fact that we keep cows and calves together and aren't we so sympathetic. Gut health. Gut they were coming for selfish reasons. Hmm. People with ill health will go and find good nutrition because they realize they've gone through the whole medical system. Nothing's helping them. They're only treating symptoms rather than the cause. And these people are starting to realize we need to actually get to the, to the root cause to then fix it. And when they come to us, then they go, oh, and you keep the cows and cows together and you, and you do regenerative. Then you get the, the, the buy-in. Right. So sadly, only I, it's when people are already sick that they are. It's not every case, but right. the, the, the survey we did, that was the result that came back, which meant that we needed to market to ill people with gut issues. Um, that was the big one, gut issues, mm -hmm. um, skin issues, asthma, eczema. Um, so s sadly, I think we need to, to, to uh, sadly, it's Ill, Ill people that are coming to us to, to heal. And then when they do come to us to heal, they heal. realize we're healing the earth as well as, the, as, well as them. Mm. And I think that needs to, be a, um, it needs to be a ripple effect that people actually then tell somebody else that's got IBS or eczema, I tried this and it worked, to come back. For raw milk especially, um, people are more in tune with the, what's going on in the world. And if they start searching out people that are doing the job properly, then the industry will grow. And like everything, the money talks. If, more, if, if we can make more money from having a regenerative, issue, uh, regenerative system where people are healthy, and more people buy in, then more farmers will do it, more people pop up doing it. And that's basically how it has to work. We, we're not pioneers, people are way ahead of us. Mm. Um, but we're maybe near the near the front of the curve, and then we need just need we just need the backlash to come through and actually get on the swell. So, how can um, viewers and listeners at home? How can us as average consumers support farmers like just you? Just find a local farm. Okay. And pay the price that you need to pay to actually keep them in business. Simple as that. If you do that, then there's going to be another farm that's going to start up five miles down the road, and and it just yeah absolutely but also know that you're 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 buying your your food security you don't know whether that supermarket is going to have stuff on their shelves next week yeah. you have no idea you have no clue whereas if you come to me i can tell you down well there's going to be some milk next next week or there'll be some meat next week because you're investing into that and that's priceless it's priceless well there's actually it's vital mm. if you're relying on a centralized system if you're, if you're putting your food security into a centralized system, you need to be aware that that centralized system can break any time. And then food security suddenly becomes your issue. And if you don't have anything to put away, then you're in trouble. Support the local farms, because if everything goes to shit, one thing you're going to need is food. Yeah, at least we still have each other. And each other. I need to let you go milk your cows. Thank you. Thank you so much for a pleasure. joining us at our table of conversation. And well, hopefully this isn't the last time that we see you. Absolutely not. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Thank you.